Morning. Told you I keep my promises. Good morning. You ready, Alan? All right. You got some audio? Good morning, everyone. Anybody ever seen that old movie? A couple times over the years? Yeah, that's right. Um, I wanted to, to show you that clip this morning because um, uh, as I was thinking about the topic that we're going to be uh, getting into, I, you know, one of the things that I find it funny when I think about my story and my testimony and just kind of how God got a hold of my life. It's interesting how when you, when you think about all the ways in which God works, David made a great point earlier in his class where he talked about God doesn't waste anything. He uses everything. He will work through everything. And sometimes I find it interesting when I hear people's testimonies of the strange and sometimes off-the-wall, outside-the-box ways that God will often get a hold of our attention and draw us into a relationship with him. Part of my story, one thing that really grabbed my heart when I was about 10 or 11 years old, uh, the Raiders of the Lost Ark came out in the late 80s, and I was only about three or so when it first came out. But when I was about 10 or 11 years old, when I first saw uh, that movie, I became like an avid fan of Indiana Jones. If you've ever gone in my office, I have a very humble collection of Indiana Jones memorabilia. I've got, I try to collect some things, but uh, as you can see, I got a couple things uh, that I have with me this morning. Um, but I have. I've always loved these movies. I've, I've always loved the adventure. I've always loved the, the mystery, the, the idea of the, what, what they call the romance of archaeology. And, um, and I especially love how the movies, the first, two, the first movie and the third movie, have themes that kind of surround the Bible. And, and that was one of the things that God used to kind of draw me into an interest in the Bible because I started realizing, wait a minute, these things that are talked about in God's Word, are you telling me that you can actually, you know, maybe use the Bible like a treasure map and go and find some of these things, right? And so in Raiders of the Lost Ark, you'll remember that, that Indiana Jones was, was looking for the, the Ark of the Covenant, which is mentioned in the Old Testament. And then in the third installment of the movie, in the last crusade, which is interesting, David, you're talking about the crusades, um, he's going after the Holy Grail. The, the supposed cup that, that Jesus used at the Last Supper. But I remember as a teenager just becoming so obsessed with these movies and becoming just obsessed with the idea of biblical archaeology. 
And a little known fact a lot of people don't realize is that when I first started, I actually was not intending to, to spend the rest of my life being a minister of the gospel. I actually wanted to become a biblical archaeologist. And so when I went to Lipscomb University, I was at first studying languages. My master's and bi- the bachelor's and master's was in Hebrew and Greek. And so my idea was is that I was going to get my master's there, and then I was going to travel to Cincinnati, uh, to the to University of Cincinnati, get my anthropology degree. And then I already had plans to go to Jerusalem, to Hebrew Union, and to get my Ph.D. And so my plan for my life was eventually living in Israel. And doing digs and being a bookworm, a bookworm and teaching in a university. I wanted to follow after the footsteps of Indiana Jones. And uh, I've told you the story before that that all shifted one day when I had an elder sit down with me one time. And he says, listen, I, I think it's great that you're interested in doing these things. But would you rather spend the rest of your life digging up and talking about dead people? Or would you rather spend the rest of your life honoring Jesus by serving people that are alive? And uh, that little shift in focus helped me to decide to not pursue those goals and to actually go into ministry. But that leads me to the topic that I want to talk about this morning as we've been uh, continuing this sermon series, looking at the foundation of of our faith, which is the Bible itself. Um, The Bible tells us in Romans chapter 10, verse 17, you guys know this verse like the back back of your hand. It says that faith comes from hearing And hearing by what? The word of Christ. So in other words, what that's telling you is that the Bible, the very words of God that you see contained in the scriptures, is the foundation of your faith. There's nothing else that comes from nowhere else. It's not based upon thoughts, opinions, emotions. It's not even based upon the evidence that I've been sharing with you the last several weeks. It is based completely and solely on the word of God. And I think that's one of the reasons why you see such an attack on the Bible. That's why you see such an attack on truth itself. Because if you notice, in, in our day and time, people don't really believe or rely so much on the Word of God anymore. They, they tend to see a lot of faults in it, a lot of problems in it. And so that's why we've been talking about this question of how do we know the Bible is true? How do we know that the Bible is inspired? And last week, we started talking about some of the evidence that we can look at in terms of knowing whether or not the Bible is the inspired Word of God. And if you remember last Sunday, we started talking about some of the internal evidences, the internal evidences for the inspiration of the Bible. There's a lot of them, but we picked two, okay? Understand this. The, the, the study of apologetics is a massive study that you can get into. So we're only scratching the surface. So the two that I decided to focus on last Sunday, I think is some of the strongest internal evidence it talks about and shows the inspiration of the Bible. The first one, if you remember, uh, we talked about the Bible is textually credible. And, 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 and if you remember, I told you that th- I shared that information with you because this, is, this answers that question that I'm sure you've heard before. You're talking to someone about God. You're talking to somebody about the Bible. And they say, well, I don't know if I believe in that. You know, it's, a, it's an old book. It's, it's thousands of years old. I don't know if it's been altered or changed over the years. And so because of that, they cast doubt upon the text itself. Well, if you remember, over the last couple of weeks, one of the first things that we taught you is that the Bible is textually credible, right? It's textually credible. And so the reason why I shared that information with you is so that when you have that conversation, and you will have it again, I promise you, when someone says, I don't know if I can trust the Bible, what's your answer? Well, actually... If you look at the history, 
you see that the Bible is literally the most um, documented set of manuscripts in the history of all human civilization. In other words, there's more credibility in the documents that support the Bible and all of the massive thousands of copies that we have than any other text on the face of the planet. That is an incredible internal proof that the Bible offers us. And if you remember, the second proof that we offered is that the Bible is one unified book. 66 books, 40 different authors, different languages, over a period of thousands of years. And yet when you read the book, it is as if one author wrote it. And that is supernatural. And again, I believe that that is one of the greatest internal evidences that we have. But what about some other evidences? Are there any others? This morning, what I want to do is I want to shift the focus a little bit. And instead of talking about the internal evidence for the inspiration of the word, I want to talk to you guys a little bit about the external evidence for the inspiration of the word. What am I talking about? Are there things that we can look at outside the Bible itself in history, in archaeology, in other writings and accounts? Are there things that we can look at outside the Bible that also demonstrate the inspiration of the word of God? And the answer is yes. There is a lot of evidence out there for the inspiration of the Bible. This morning, I don't have time to get into all of it, but I want to get into just a little bit. The first thing that I want to focus on this morning, number one, is that the Bible is historically accurate. It's historically accurate. And you say, Tim, what do you mean by that? What I mean is, is that when you go back and you look at the names of these people, the lives of these people that lived in the Old and New Testament, when you look at the places that are mentioned, when you look at the events that are recorded, um, when you look at the various items, actual physical items and locations that are talked about in the Bible, over the years... It's been demonstrated through the, the uh, studies of archaeology that these things actually occurred. There is ample evidence that these things actually occurred. And this is why I get so excited because uh, over the, the last, I'd say, uh, 120 years or so, the field of archaeology has just exploded there really wasn't any real archaeology before the 1900s. And so when you go that far back and you listen to what the liberal scholars were saying back then, oh, they were having a field day trying to demonstrate that the Bible's not accurate. We don't have any evidence for this. We don't have any evidence for that. But over the last hundred years, there has been an explosion of evidence. I want to share a little bit of it with you this morning. For example, now there's so many examples I had a hard time this week when I was trying to plan this sermon because like, I was like, oh, there's this one, and oh, oh, and there's this one, and there's this one. And when I was planning out the sermon, I almost had a three-part sermon series on just archaeology. I can't do that, okay? But you can tell I get a little giddy when it comes to these kind of things, right? But let's talk about this guy for just a moment, Pontius Pilate. Believe it or not, for a long time, scholars did not believe that this man even existed, when you go back and you read some of the writings, especially the textual critics in the early 20th century, they would tell you that Pontius Pilate never existed. That he was just a, a figment of the early Christian imagination because the Jesus myth needed a villain. And so Pontius Pilate was that villain. And so for a long time, they said, there's no archaeological evidence. Pontius Pilate never lived. And so what happened? As it turned out in 1961... 
An Israeli helicopter gunship was flying down the coast of Israel. And they noticed something down below. If you notice the picture on the upper left over here, they noticed that there was an ancient structure that was partially submerged under the water. And they could see other structures that were obviously of archaeological importance. And so when they started excavating, what they realized is what that is, is the very city that's mentioned in your New Testament called Caesarea Philippi. And it turned out there was all kinds of things that were discovered there in Caesarea Philippi. There was this incredible amphitheater. Everybody knows what an amphitheater is, right? That's that's, that's where they went to the movies 2,000 years ago. Okay, good job, Caleb. All right, so 2,000 years ago. So let me show you what they found. In the steps leading up to the amphitheater, if you look over to the right, there's a, a stone monument tablet there. And would you like to know what that says in the Greek? It commemorates who built the amphitheater. And on that stone tablet in Greek, it says, we thank Pontius Pilate. Right there in Greek, in words right in front of you. Well, what do you think happened after that? Ever since the 60s, they couldn't deny that Pontius Pilate actually lived. And so since that time, they've uncovered all kinds of stuff. They've uncovered other inscriptions that mention his name. They've uncovered documents outside the Bible, Roman annals that mention his name. If you look on the lower left up here, that's a signet ring. Everybody knows what that is, right? A signet ring, the seven seals of the book of Revelation. That's how you make the seal with a, a clay impression. Guess whose name is written on that seal? Pontius Pilate. He very, mil, very well may have worn that ring itself. And then over in the bottom right, over here, that small picture is a coin also bearing the name of Pontius Pilate. Thank goodness the Bible got lucky on that one. Here's another one, Belshazzar. Anybody heard of Belshazzar? Belshazzar is mentioned in the book of Daniel. Now, those of you who are in my book of Daniel class, you guys know exactly what I'm going to talk about. This is another example of how uh, modern-day uh, you know, scholars, so-called scholars and, and um, uh, liberal scholars will will not believe the Bible because it's in the Bible, right? So for a long time, they said, there's no archaeological evidence of a Belshazzar. Because when you go back to the book of Daniel, it tells you that Belshazzar was sitting on the throne. Well, our, the, the, the liberal world, the, the academics said, there's no evidence for that. And in fact, when we go back and we look at the Babylonian records, we know who was on the throne at this time. The king was a guy by the name of Nabonidus. He was the guy that was king. There's no Belshazzar that's mentioned. So obviously what? The Bible must be wrong. The Bible must be incorrect. Well, in 1956, archaeologists in Iraq discovered on the left what is now called the Nabonidus Cylinder. You can see it right over here. If you look at the writing, this uh, writing is called cuneiform. It is the ancient Babylonian language of Akkadian. They also found this tablet over here that was also commissioned by Nabonidus. And in these documents, it explains the political situation that was going on in the time of Daniel. Let me give you a little taste of it. I can't read Akkadian, okay? But, but if you were to read the story that's on those tablets, here's the story that it's trying to tell you. Nabonidus was king at the time. He hated it. <laughs> he hated it. Nabonidus was what you would call it day time as a playboy. He had no interest in politics, politics whatsoever. And we know from history that the people couldn't stand the guy. Right? I'm not going to liken him to any modern day politicians. But pick one you don't like and that would be like Nabonidus. Okay? Now listen. Here's what's interesting. Here's what that cylinder tells you. 
So while he was gone, sitting at his cushy vacation home down in Arabia, enjoying wine and whatever he wanted to enjoy, not being involved in the politics, he places his son, Belshazzar, on the throne as co-regent. In other words, there's two kings. Isn't that interesting? And that, by the way, corroborates something that's mentioned in the book of Daniel. Because when Daniel finally interprets the mene mene tekelu farsin, right, the writing on the wall, he wants to offer him a position. And he says, if you do this for me, I'll make you the third highest ruler in all the nation. And you're scratching your head going, why third? I thought you were first. Why not second? Well, now you know. Because the Nabonidus sealer tells us. Dad was on the throne, but he wasn't ruling, so he made his son king, and that's why Belshazzar looks at Daniel and says, you'll be third. Does that make sense? Fascinating. Thank goodness the Bible got lucky yet again. Here's another one I want to show you. Anybody remember Nineveh? There's a story in the book of Jonah. It says that God commissioned Jonah to go and preach against the city of Nineveh. Because it was so wicked. And you guys know the story, right? And for a long time, again, skeptics said, there's no Nineveh. There's no archaeological evidence for Nineveh. So again, the Bible just must have made it up. There's nothing there that we can say, yep, this proves the Bible to be true. And for a long time, that was the case. Well, what happened? In 1847, there was a man by the name of Sir Austin Henry Layard. I've done entire lectures on Sir Austin Henry Layard. If there was ever a man in the history of archaeology that was like Indiana Jones, it was that guy. He's got some great stories to tell. But basically, in the early 1800s, archaeology was a little different. It wasn't an academic pursuit. It was a bunch of people that took the Bible and used it like a treasure map to go find the things that were talked about. And so he did. He took his Bible. He read it. He found different things in the Bible that eventually led him to discovering the city of Nineveh. The actual city of Nineveh. Anybody ever been to the British Museum? Raise your hand. I'm curious. British Museum, okay? Did you ever get a chance to see the winged bulls in there? Okay, those were from the city of Assyria, from, from the nation of Assyria, from the city of Nineveh. There's so much we could talk about about these things, um, but we're going to move on. But here's the thing that I find interesting. If it's in the Bible, modern liberal scholars who don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ will almost always doubt it or cast some kind of doubt on it or not believe it. And yet, when it's corroborated later on in history, in archaeology, they have no no, they have no other recourse except to believe. Isn't that interesting? Isn't that interesting? Now, I got one more I want to show you. This one I, I just find absolutely fascinating. When I was in college, one of my uh, favorite professors was Dr. Rodney Cloud. And he was good friends with Dr. Uh, Adam Zertal. Zertal was kind of doing what I wanted to do with my life. He lived in Israel. He was an archaeologist. And he decided that he was going to make his life pursuit excavating the mountain of Ebal. You guys remember the mountain of Ebal? Uh, Let me give you a little context here. Uh, After the 40 years wandering in the wilderness, God has told Moses he can't go in the promised land. So Moses has commissioned Joshua to take over and to take them into the promised land. But what does he do before they go in? They go to these two mountains, Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal. And he puts half the people on one mountain and half the people on the other side of the mountain. And he reads the law of God that was commissioned to them to to read basically what the curses and the blessings are before they go into the promised land. So they looked at Mount Ebal. Ebal means what? The mountain of cursing. And what they did is they read the curses of the law to the people on Mount Ebal. If you do not obey the law of Moses, here's the consequences as a nation that you could expect for not listening. 
And then on Mount Gerizim, it was called the mountain of blessing. And then they read the blessings from the law on that side. Here's all the things that you could expect as blessings if you obey the law of Moses. So what happens is, Dr. Adam Zertal in the early 80s, he started excavating uh, Mount Ebal. And if you notice on the left-hand side here, or the bottom picture, in the Bible it says that when Joshua did this, he built a stone altar. Guess what he found in the early 80s on top of Mount Ebal? Stone altar. And of course, he's had to deal with skeptics over the last 20 years about whether this is actually it. But because of the types of pottery, because of the types of other inscriptions and things that have been found around this, that most people today have no doubt whatsoever that that right there is the very altar that Joshua built on the top of Mount Ebal. Is that not amazing? Incredible. I want to share something with you even more incredible than that. Check this out. After he found the altar um, last year, this is one of the latest archaeological discoveries that have been found in the world of biblical archaeology. Last year, they found this right here. It is a folded lead tablet that they found buried in the ground up here by the altar. And it was an amulet that had an inscription on it. Well, you can imagine something that old. You can't see it anymore. Here's what's amazing. They used modern laser technology. They actually have a type of laser that was actually able to look on the inside of that thing and pick up on the actual ink writing that was on the inside of it and create a composite image basically of what's written on the inside of it without trying to unfold it. Is that not cool? I mean, because if you tried to unfold it, what would happen? You would just destroy it. Now watch this. Would anybody like to know what that says? What they found, if you notice, this is Hebrew, but it's not like the Hebrew that you're typically used to reading. This is what's called proto-Hebrew, the earliest writings of Hebrew. In other words, this is what Hebrew looked like when it was first starting to be developed, early, early on. Which, by the way, when you find things like that in archaeology, what does that tell you? That tells you that the dating of this also goes back a long, long, long way. Here's what the inscription said. What they discovered... And, and by the way, if you are interested in the world of biblical archaeology, this find right here has taken the archaeological world by storm over the last year. All kinds of things are being said. Why? Because this is the earliest Hebrew inscription in the world. Right here. Earliest Hebrew inscription in the entire world right here. So where does it date to? Well, it dates to 1200 B.C. Now, if you know your history you'll know that the Exodus probably took place somewhere around 1446 B.C. If you allow for 40 years in the wandering of the wilderness, that leaves you about 1404 when they enter into the land, and then Joshua begins his campaign. Well, this dates to about 1200 B.C. So in other words, this altar was built right around the time that they were entering into the land, and then about 100 years later, somebody made that amulet, and it went in the mount right here. Now, I know you're on the edge of your seat, so let me read you what it says. It says this, and I quote, Cursed, cursed, cursed by the God Yahweh. You will die cursed. Cursed, you will surely die. Cursed by Yahweh. Cursed, cursed, cursed. You say, wow, that sounds pretty intense. It is. What they found on that altar was an inscription commemorating the very event that took place a hundred years prior to when it was written when Joshua came in and read from the law of the curses on top of that mountain. Is that not amazing? 
And by the way, not only do we have this curse, which this, this cursing um, inscription that corroborates the story, but we also have the name of God himself, Yahweh, which now in the archaeological world, this is the earliest known inscription we have of the name of God. I love it. I find it fascinating. So here's the deal, folks. One figure estimates that there have been over 25,000 archaeological discoveries that corroborate the Bible over the past 120 years. 25,000. Dr. Clifford Wilson, who's a very famous archaeologist, he is the, was formerly the director of the Australian Institute of Archaeology, he said this. He said, I know of no finding in archaeology that's properly confirmed, which is in opposition to the Scriptures. Listen to this. The Bible is the most accurate history textbook the world has ever seen. Dr. Bryant Wood, the man who made the discovery that I just told you about on Mount Ebal, he said this. He said, in every instance where the findings of archaeology pertain to the Bible record, the biblical record, the archaeological evidence confirms and sometimes in detailed fashion the historical accuracy of Scripture. In those instances where the archaeological findings seems to be at variance with the Bible, the discrepancy lies with the evidence, the archaeological evidence, that is, improper interpretation, lack of evidence, but not with the Bible itself. I tell you what, the Bible is true, folks. But let me give you another evidence that I want to share with you this morning that I think is also probably the most powerful proof of all. That, that God's word is inspired and that it's from the Bible. And that is to show the proof and evidence of what we call biblical prophecy. The Bible is not only historically accurate. I just demonstrated a, just a taste of it for you. But the Bible is also prophetically accurate. One of the most unique features of the scriptures that sit in your lap or sits on your phone is that God, over the last several thousand years, has made hundreds if not thousands of prophecies, predictions, foretellings, things that God said would happen, things that people would do, things that would happen to events and and circumstances and cities. And here's what's incredible about it is that those things have always occurred exactly the way that they were foretold. And the reason why I call these external evidences is because the Bible makes the prediction, but then something happens on the outside that, that corroborates what the Bible said. That's why I don't put the prophetic in the internal. I'll put it in the external because God prophesies something about a city or town and then later on it happens and then we get to find the evidence of it later on that it actually occurred. Does that make sense? Let me show you something. We could talk about all kinds of events and times and rulers and the rise and fall of nations. There's so many hundreds of prophecies we could get into that prove to you that that's God's word. But what I want to do this morning is I want to exalt the name of Jesus Christ. And I want to show you something interesting about the prophecies regarding Jesus Christ. Now listen to this. This is just a taste. Do not think that I spent this week trying to be exhausted because I can't. There's no way to be exhausted. Did you know that when it comes to the first coming of Jesus Christ, that in the Old Testament there are at least 350 prophecies that God made that demonstrates everything about the life of Christ. And some of those prophecies are hundreds of years old, and some of those prophecies are even thousands of years old. For example, in the Old Testament, again, before Jesus was born, the Bible laid it out and said that he would be born of a virgin. 
born in Bethlehem, that he would be famed for his wisdom, that he would live a sinless life, that he healed the needy and preached the good news, and he entered Jerusalem in triumph and would be betrayed by a friend and sold for 30 pieces of silver. The Bible foretold hundreds of years, Isaiah, that's 700 years before the birth of Jesus Christ, that he would be silent when accused, he would be beaten, spat upon, that he would be crucified with sinners. He said 600 years before Jesus was born that at a crucifixion he would be pierced, he would be buried with the rich, and by the way, a thousand years before Jesus was born, because David wrote the last three in the Psalms, that he would rise from the dead, ascend into heaven, and be exalted at God's right hand. Don't tell me the prophecy is not amazing. These prophecies lay out in advance the entire life of Jesus Christ. Now listen to me. You tell me, how does that happen? I want to give you an illustration. Mathematics and astronomy professor one time, he talked about, um, he made the statement, he was really into statistics. I, I can't do math. That was not my forte. But he said this, he said that when you do the statistics, if you take just eight of the prophecies, eight of the prophecies that Jesus made or that were made about the coming, uh, the first coming of Jesus Christ, if you just take eight prophecies like these and they all come true, the, the chances of all these prophecies coming true in the life of one person would be this, it would be one in, you got any math people here? What is that right there? That, I can't count that high, gang. I, I, don't, I think that might be a bigger than a trillion. See, you guys can argue and fight over that if you want to. Any, here's, how, here's how I'm going to interpret. That's a big doggone number. <laughs> all right? Do you have a better chance of winning the lottery than you do for all these prophecies being fulfilled? Yes, you do. And here's what's amazing, God. Listen to this. He said, let me, let me give you an illustration. It would be just like this. The chances of eight prophecies being fulfilled would be like this. Let's say you took a guy and you blindfolded him. And you took silver dollars and you, you spread silver dollars across the whole state of Texas. Now, I didn't know how big Texas was until we moved here a year ago. This is a big doggone state. He says, but if you take those silver dollars and you spread them across the entire land of Texas, two feet deep, and then you took a man and you blindfolded him, and you took one of those silver dollars somewhere in Texas, don't, don't know care where, and you took one of those silver dollars and you put a mark on it and you threw it out there and you told the guy and you said, okay, now start walking. Pick a random spot. Bend down and pick up a silver dollar. And then if that's the red one, that would be about the chances you would have of just eight prophecies being fulfilled in the life of Jesus Christ. But here's the problem. He didn't fulfill just eight. He filled over 350. In other words, you cannot do the math on that, guys. You cannot do the math on that at all. So, how can all these, these thousands of prophecies come true, hundreds and, and sometimes thousands of years later? To me, it's very simple. The God's, God's Word told us in 2 Peter chapter 1, 20-21, it says, No prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men were moved by the Holy Spirit, and they spoke from God. Before we close, I want to... I want to give you one more proof. 
that the Bible is what it says it is, that it's truth. And the proof that I want to offer to you is probably the one that comes under most people's scrutiny because it is subjective at best. But the final proof that I want to offer to you is the proof of changed lives. The proof of changed lives. Unlike any other book in human history, any book, you name it, no other book ever written, no other book ever printed can claim the truth that it has changed millions, if not billions of lives over the last several thousands of years. And personally, I will tell you this. I will put myself into that category. Because this book has given me strength when I have felt like quitting. It has confronted me over my bad attitudes that I needed to change. It has convicted me over my sin and caused me to repent, sometimes countless times, and to seek reconciliation with those around me. This book has changed my perspective on my past. It has given me hope to be able to live in the present. And it has given me an absolute hope for what it promised me in the future. And I have oriented my entire life around the pursuit of the truth that is contained in this book. One of the things I've learned over the years, guys, as a preacher, is that most people don't have intellectual issues with the Bible. See, I'm presenting these things to you because they edify you. They edify your faith. They don't give you faith, but it builds up your faith a little bit. But one of the things I've realized is most people don't have intellectual issues with the Bible. Most people have lifestyle issues with the Bible. Because in order to embrace this word of God and to let it be a truth in your life, it is akin to allowing a surgeon take a knife and to begin cutting away physically at things in you that cause you to be uncomfortable. And the fact of the matter is most people simply don't read the Bible because they don't want to submit to the surgery. They would rather mock and claim that the Bible is full of errors and irrelevant than to submit to the Bible's authority and to do the hard things that it requires for us to change our lives and to live within the will of God. It's interesting because God's Word actually says this very thing. It says, for the Word of God is living, it's active, it's sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to the dividing of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. Now, as, uh, as if all this evidence uh, wasn't enough, I've got one last little thing I want to I share with you this morning. I want to come down here. I brought it with me. That's why I'm wearing this bag on my patch. Somebody said, looks like you're about to go traveling. I want to share this with you. This is fascinating. I brought something with me. Back in 1999, I had the opportunity to go to Israel. I was on a study trip from Lipscomb University. I was there as a student. I was doing a study program. And my job was basically to go to every archaeological site that we encountered and then write a paper on it. When I was up in Caesarea Philippi, which is that first place that I showed you where they found that, that uh, stone tablet talking about Pontius Pilate, I was walking along and I found this. It was laying just on the top of a, of a dirt mound. And I, and I went over to the tour guide. His name was Ami. Ami. And I said, Ami, Ami, what is this? This is interesting. I, I mean, I, literally, I found something on an archaeological site. I was wearing this very bag, by the way, because I was still a nut back then, too. And, and so I said, what, what is this? I felt as giddy as a schoolboy, to use a line from Last Crusade. And, and, he, and he says, oh. He goes, what you found? He says, this is a Roman roof tile from 2,000 years ago. In other words, what I'm holding right now is just a good old-fashioned shingle. <laughs> from a roof 
And I thought, wow, that is so amazing. And I thought that, you know, I needed to, like, give it to him like this, and, and it was going to wind up in a museum. And he goes, oh, no. He says, those things are everywhere. <laughs> he looked at it, and he says, he says, as long as there's no writing on it, as long as there's no distinguishing features, he goes, here, take it home. Good souvenir. And I was like, yes, sir. <laughs> I will. And this thing has become a, a prized possession of mine for over 20 years. And let me tell you why. It reminds me of the story in Luke chapter 5, 17 through 26. Uh, Alan, I don't have my clicker, so in a moment, just I'll let you go to that scripture for me if you would. But in Luke chapter 5, 19 through 26, let me, let me set the stage. Jesus is teaching in a, in a house. The Bible says that the Pharisees and the teachers of the law are there, and the people are pressing in. And, and, and it says that there's these guys that had a friend that was a paralytic. Right? He was paralyzed. He couldn't move. He couldn't do anything. But they knew that Jesus was in town, and they had faith because they had heard about the miracles. They probably had friends and family that had also experienced the miracles. And so when they heard that Jesus was there, they said, this is the time. This is the opportunity. We need to take our friend. But the problem was is that when they took the friend there, they couldn't get in the house because it was so full, and people were pressing in. And what does the story tell us? It says that they went upon the roof, it says they tore away the roof. And they made a hole. They, they took off the Roman roof tiles and they removed the wood and they, they dug through the layer of dirt that made up the roof. And, and they lowered this guy down so that Jesus could touch his life, so that Jesus could heal this man's life. Now, I can't say that this is from that story, but, but boy, it reminds me of the power of that story. And here's how that story continues. Look at Luke 5, 19 through 21. When they couldn't find a way to do this because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and they lowered him on his mat through the tiles into the middle of the crowd right in front of Jesus. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said, friend, your sins are forgiven. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law began thinking to themselves, who is this guy who speaks blasphemy? Who can forgive sins but God alone? So I want you to pay a very close attention to what's happening here in the text. The friends looked at Jesus. And they could see the evidence that what he was saying was truth. And in faith, they acted on that evidence. And they brought their friends so that he could be healed. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were also looking at that very same evidence. But they were drawing another conclusion. When they looked at that same evidence, they came to the conclusion, who can forgive sins but God alone? They didn't like where the evidence was leading them. But here's how I want to leave it this morning. Where is the evidence leading you? Where is the evidence leading you? Do we see this morning where this evidence is leading? That God's word is absolute truth. That God's word is textually credible. That God's word is one unified book. That God's word is historically accurate. It is prophetically accurate. And the most important uh, truth of all is that it has changed millions and millions of lives. But that means nothing if it's not changing you. And so this morning as I close, ultimately the question that you have to decide for yourself is where do you stand with that book? Are you allowing God's word, his inspired word, to transform and change you on the inside? 
Where is the evidence leading you? I'm going to leave this up here if you want to come and check it out after worship. Thank you very much. Would you please pray with me? Father God, thank you so much for what you've done for us. Thank you for the evidence that we have. We know we don't even need it, Lord. Everybody in this room has had faith in Jesus Christ before I ever started this sermon series, God. But thank you for the evidence. Thank you for the constant reminders, the little fingerprints that you leave us every day. That these words are yours, they're truth. These things happen. And that we today are a part of the greater story that continues on toward redemption. We pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen.